The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Theo Rio Francos. We spoke about A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, a new book co-authored by Thea and out now from Verso Books. We spoke about why the notion of a new deal is the right framing for a project to avert the worst consequences of the climate crisis, why environmental victories are necessarily entwined with the struggle against inequality and the importance to the climate movement of forging alliances across borders and through supply chains, and how to achieve rapid rollout of renewable technologies without compounding environmental devastation and injustice at sites of rare earth mineral extraction. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have just launched their end-of-year sale. With 50% off everything until the end of the year, you'll find reading on the rise of automation, the threat of catastrophic climate change, our digital dystopian or utopian futures, and new feminist thinking, as well as books that show us the potential for radical change. They also have bundled ebooks with every print purchase, meaning you can gift the print book if you want to and start reading the ebook straight away. Visit versobooks.com for more information. Theoria Francos is an assistant professor of political science at Providence College and the author of Resource Radicals. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, N Plus One, Jacobin, The Los Angeles Review of Books, Dissent and In These Times. She also serves on the steering committee of the DSA's Eco-Socialist Working Group. I began the interview by asking Thea to give a broad overview of what advocates of the Green New Deal are calling for. The Green New Deal is a policy paradigm that simultaneously addresses the climate crisis and the crisis of social and economic inequality. And if we sort of imagined it as several pieces of huge pieces of legislation um, and public programs, each of those targets simultaneously the climate crisis Mm and socioeconomic inequality. So that's in a really broad way, I think, the best way to see the Green New Deal, or at least the Green New Deal as it's currently envisioned on the sort of left of the Democratic Party and also outside of the Democratic Party, further left than that, as well as um, in the UK Labour Party, which are two political parties within which elected officials have been discussing Green New Deal-type programs. So that, that's how I think of the Green New Deal as a set of policies, but I'm going to pause right now and actually broaden it a little bit more, even though that was already quite broad, which is to say that as an activist, I see the Green New Deal not only as a set of policies, but also as a political terrain that is much more open than just those policies, more open and more unpredictable, and of course a highly asymmetric political terrain where we're battling not only fossil fuel companies and the sort of economic power elites, but also the 
political establishment. So I think that kind of taking it broadly as a political terrain on which we are contesting structures of economic and political power that have created the climate crisis. I think that's the way to think about the Green New Deal. Um, and, and on that terrain, there are different specific positions that different groups and political parties and progressive politicians have and, and will continue to articulate. But I think what, what the Green New Deal is, is and how it will unfold is still in flux. That being said, I think that precisely because it's a political terrain and there's conflict and asymmetry um, and extremely powerful enemies, it's very important to be clear on what our principles and goals are. So the fact that it's unpredictable how climate politics will play out and also how the climate system will continue to kind of enter into deeper forms of crisis, it's extremely important to make clear bold demands on both the level of sort of legislation and public policy, but also on the level simultaneously of social mobilization and a kind of extra parliamentary protest. So that that's kind of how I'd, I'd kind of open a conversation about the Green New Deal. It connects inequality and climate crisis, um, but it's also a broader terrain of political action in which we're going to see a lot of different vying and competing proposals and what's important for the eco-socialist left, which is kind of my political um, affinity or, or um, ideological position, is to be bold and urgent about what we demand and to be unafraid about pointing fingers at those who are most responsible for causing the climate crisis and those whose patterns of economic activity and lifestyles would need to change the most dramatically in order to have a safe climate. I mean, regarding the, the point about the entwining of policymaking and, and campaigning around climate together with social justice and ameliorating inequality. I mean, as I understand it, it's not simply the case that there's this sort of two-front war whereby we're struggling on both terrains because of, uh, of the, just the question of justice, that these are the right things to do, but rather that to do anything serious about climate, we actually need to take on the, the, the broader question of inequality. Absolutely. And, and I, I, I don't think at all, and, and, and not that you're suggesting this, but of course, many in the political establishment have suggested that the social justice elements of the Green New Deal, the guarantees of, of housing, um, of, um, of union rights, um, of jobs guarantee itself, all of those types of things um, of Medicare for all are kind of just like progressive wish list tacking on to what the real issue is, which is the climate crisis. And I think that's altogether the wrong way to think about it. The, the causes and effects of, of the climate crisis are deeply imbricated in the organization of our societies and economies. And to analytically separate climate from the broader socioeconomic structure is a fallacy. And so I think that the for that reason, any policy tools or mobilization efforts to to target the climate crisis necessarily also have implications for the way that society and the economy is organized, right? So I think that, that the idea that adding social and economic policies onto dealing with the climate crisis is like an addition is, is very strange to begin with, just kind of from an analytic perspective. But more empirically, um, we know that the worst offenders, and by that I mean both corporations like the fossil fuel companies and other corporations who have very high emissions to produce whatever goods they produce or to extract resources, and also the sort of most wealthy, 
those are the most responsible in terms of emissions. That doesn't mean that the rest of us don't also cause emissions in everything that we do every day. We do. I and mean, we can talk about that more later. But there is a, a really big gulf between what you know, I think it's between 70 and 100 of the top corporate polluters and the sort of 1% of, of affluent people between the amount of carbon their economic activities and lifestyles respectively emit and what most of us emit or what even other kind of, you know, smaller economic enterprises might emit. So I think that there's a really big difference in terms of emissions and responsibility for emissions. And you can also map that on kind of geopolitically and historically and thinking about the responsibility of the global north or the wealthiest countries. Um, I think that that analysis is also extremely important as long as it's always understood that within the global north, there's also vast inequality in responsibility. So, so that's on the sort of responsibility end, right? We know that, that, the, that the sources of, of emissions are, are not equally kind of divided or distributed amongst all of us, whoever the us is. And then the second is on the, the impacts and the vulnerability so if the sort of 1% or the sort of most powerful corporations are the most responsible for climate, for the climate crisis, then those who are suffering its most immediate and dramatic effects are the least well-off, both, again, in sort of global terms, within nations and domestic terms, you know, arrayed across social groups. So however you want to look at it, whether you're looking at responsibility or you're looking at impact, Climate change is a deeply unequal phenomena across class, across race, across geography, and sort of across different roles in the sort of development of capitalism historically. In terms of that point about differing levels of responsibility, I mean, how, how difficult do you think it is to, to get that point across? Because, I mean, it's, it's clearly the case that it's not simply confined to the right of or even the centre of the political spectrum. I mean, you see a lot of this kind of language in the environmental movement of talking about, uh, you know, what we are doing to, to the planet. I mean, one of those things that goes around is that, is that notion of sort of how many planets we would need if, if everyone lived like the average Western European or, or the average American. How easy do you think it is going to be to deal with that kind of narrative? Well, I think that one of actually the main impediments, or one of several impediments, I'll put it that way, because there's more than one, to sort of politically, to generating the political will to and level of grassroots mobilization that would be necessary to confront the climate crisis has precisely been the lack of targets and enemies. And by targets, I don't mean like we're going to reduce emissions by X percent by Y year. There have been plenty of those, um, and a lot of them have been way off base in the past, and now our targets are getting much closer, I think, to the reality of what climate science demands of us. But what I mean by targets is political and economic targets. So whenever you're kind of organizing a, a grassroots campaign, you think of who are we targeting, right? Like who who are the powerful people that actually um, sit on the levers of power um, that we need to push? And who are the people that we actually also need to prosecute and punish and regulate out of existence and corporations, right? And so I think that without enemies or targets, it's actually difficult to mobilize broad-based support for what will be some pretty difficult and dramatic changes in how our society is organized. I actually don't think it makes the job easier to see climate change as sort of like 
diffuse, agent-less, kind of without any protagonists. There are real people and real corporations that have made real decisions, often knowing full well the implications of their decisions, that have resulted in the climate crisis that we now face. Of course, you know, if we go 100 years ago, you know, or 150 years ago during the, the, the Industrial Revolution, of course, humans may not have been aware of, or the scientists may not have been aware of the impacts of carbon emissions, though they were aware of plenty of other of environmental harms that industrialization was causing. And if you read people at the time during the Industrial Revolution, it, it there is an awareness that something bad is happening, right? There's pollution that's visible. There's all sorts of environmental destruction that the piece about emissions was not known. But as we get a little bit closer to the present, um, many of these corporate actors have acted with just full knowledge um, and impunity. And so I think that, A, the reality is that there are people that have made decisions, specific people and specific corporations that have made decisions and that the rest of us are living with the consequences of, but also that I think politically it is useful to polarize. Um, I don't think that kind of a, just like we're all responsible and, you know, the enemy is us, is useful because many people rightly feel like, you know, they don't feel personally responsible for the climate crisis, nor is, you know, nor should they. No one individual is responsible, right? And most ordinary people don't have, like, outsized responsibility. But they also will feel turned off by that, I think, in, in terms of the politics of, of generating mobilization. I, I don't think that it's inspiring to people to sort of self-flagellate and have a diffuse shared sense of guilt, um, I think what is more inspiring, and I base this on my knowledge of, of social movements, of revolutions, of major, you know, critical junctures in the past where policy change has occurred, I think that it, it very much helps to have a goal and to have an enemy and to have polarization between the coalition of, let's say, the 99% and, and the 1% who is most or disproportionately at least responsible for the climate crisis. As you say, that sort of diffuse sense of guilt. I mean, it's you know that's almost the primary affect of neoliberal society, isn't it? The sense that, that one is responsible for one's own situation, whether that's economically or or in terms of the situation of the planet. How much do you think the environmental movement has actually played into this narrative and helped to turn people off from a radical message around climate? I think to some extent it has, and, and that's an excellent point, actually. I, I, I hadn't quite made that connection between the diffuse sense of guilt and kind of cruel optimism of our everyday lives, where we're like never, you know, getting that life of security that we think we um, deserve, and it's all our faults because we're not working hard enough. And there's something similar parallel in the structure of feeling around climate change um, as this sort of diffuse personal responsibility. And I do think that some environmental movements or, or organizations, to be more specific, have played a role. And I won't point any specific fingers, but I do want to sort of differentiate between different types of environmental movements. So I think that there is a kind of stereotype that is that is certainly to some extent based in reality of a kind of like middle class, individualist, kind of conservationist, lifestyle change kind of environmental ideology that we could sort of map on to particular environmental organizations, right? Where they haven't really had a robust theory of change or power in terms of how we actually need to reorganize society in order to prevent the climate crisis or prevent the, the ongoing worst effects of it. 
And they've often framed things in terms of individual consumption and individual lifestyle changes. And their constituency, to the extent that they have a sort of base or membership, is often middle or upper middle class within the global north, right? So that among those types of groups and and orientations and attitudes, I definitely think that you could lay part of the blame for where we're at right now among some environmental organizations. I don't want to sort of paint too broad a brush, but I do think that there's, you know, several parallel forms of environmental mobilization that have co-occurred kind of over the past few decades, both in the U.S. and internationally, that are much more radical, that have connected the climate crisis to capitalism or imperialism or racism specifically, that have use social justice as their primary framing. So I'm thinking of, to be broad about it, I'm thinking of environmental justice movements in the U.S., which are, which come out of communities of color battling against um, the toxic effects of, for example, power plants or petrochemical plants, and the sort of, un, you know, highly uneven and highly racialized and classed distribution of environmental harm. So those types of movements have always made the connection between power relations and the climate crisis and and power relations and environmental destruction. And then there's a very similar set of movements throughout the global south that scholars sometimes call environmentalism of the poor or popular ecology or popular environmentalism, which has a very similar view, often rooted in communities that face extractive projects or mega agribusiness or things like that, and and similarly kind of making connections between the sort of unequal social structure and the distribution of environmental harm and the externalization of environmental harm onto racialized or indigenous or working class communities um, across the global south. So I think those strains of environmentalism have precisely not individualized the environmental problem or made it about consumption on the individual level. And as the other side of that coin, they have targeted powerful actors and drawn connections between global imperialism and global capitalism and the kind of contours of the climate crisis. But in the global north for a few decades, um, you know, not coincidentally, or not uncoincidentally, I should say, the the same decades of the hegemony of neoliberalism and of the bipartisan political establishment, there has been a sort of outsized influence of environmental, again, I'm hesitant to call them movements because I don't really see them mobilizing in a grassroots way masses of people, but certainly environmental organizations that have really deflected, whether intentionally or not, our sort of um, righteous kind of rage about the climate crisis away from systems of power and towards issues of individual choice um, and consumption and sort of lifestyles. And, you know, I'll just note really quickly, just clear up any potential confusion, that I did use the word lifestyles earlier in my answer to your question, because I do think that the lifestyles of the 1% and maybe a bit more than the 1%, maybe the 10%, you know, whatever, um, you know, the number we want to use are unsustainable in the literal sense of the word. Um, I like to call them conspicuous carbon consumers because they just have such an enormous footprint and often are not even aware of this. I mean, because they think like, oh, I live in a dense metropolitan area. I walk, you know, downtown to sort of for cultural life. Like, I don't even own a car. Like, how am I, you know, what what's wrong with my lifestyle? But if you sort of trace the carbon footprint of all of the goods and services that they consume, and, and sort of map out what is their what is their carbon you know impact it is it is enormous it is enormous the wealthier you are the more carbon your lifestyle spews whether or not you are individually aware of it so I, I think it's important to focus on 
on lifestyles in the broad sense, but always to understand that lifestyles are socially structured and exist within a particular social hierarchy and a set of policies that enable them. And they're not really individual choices. And that socially, we need to think about what types of lifestyles do we want to lead and how can we rearrange society to make them much lower carbon, but also much more equal at the same time. In terms of the, uh, the chosen framing, one of the criticisms that's been made has been around the use of the language of the New Deal and, and, and why is it this that we're fixing upon as, as, as the way to frame this, this message. So, I mean, some of the criticism regarding that has been to, some people have pointed out that perhaps this reflects a nostalgia for, for an era where the American economy was actually a more significant part of the global economy and that it perhaps reflects a desire to believe that the American state can solve a problem of, of really sort of world-spanning cause at this point. Others have suggested that it reflects a certain smallness of vision, given that the New Deal was about, you know, sort of jump-starting the American economy rather than a far greater scale of task that we face regarding the climate. Another position they just put it is that it, it also sort of harks back to an era of full employment and that the the trends that we see in the global economy may be leading us to an era of increased automation and reduced employment and that we should be thinking about how to how to cope with that rather than offering this prospectus of green jobs for for everyone how do you respond to to those kind of uh, criticisms well the first thing i would say is that I hear them. I mean, I hear the criticisms and I and I take them seriously. And I also would note that in a very recent past life, like maybe about a year ago, or maybe a little more than a year ago, I, I myself was very reticent about the term Green New Deal. For some of the reasons that you suggest, but for some somewhat more specific reasons within sort of domestic politics and political history, which has to do with the way the New Deal was, while it achieved many great things, things that many of us in the U.S. are still benefiting from, and I do not want to downplay that. There's also a very real racism and, and sexism to the Green New Deal in terms of who was included and excluded from its coalition, from who, you know, what the conception of the worker was, um, who, who enjoyed rights that were linked to employment and who didn't. And then there's the, the sort of more additional kind of radical critique that the, Green, that the New Deal, excuse me, saved capitalism and saved capitalism both by sort of injecting public investment into the economy, but also by really foreclosing some more radical possibilities that were on the table at the moment in, in terms of, you know, what labor militants were pushing for around socialism and communism and sort of really transforming capitalism into a different political economic system. So I take all of those very seriously, but I've changed my mind on the matter uh, a little while ago at this point, but, but, you know, I had to sort of work through this and, and, and the way I changed my mind, and this will address some of, some of your questions, and then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll return to the ones about it being too small for, for the planetary crisis afterwards. But the reason that, that I came around to the Green New Deal was if there are a few reasons. One is that I think what's important about the Green New Deal or the sort of reappropriation of the concept of the New Deal is not that the Green New Deal is the same as the New Deal at all, and and certainly not, and hopefully not, that it will repeat any of its exclusionary kind of patterns of exclusion in, in terms of race and gender, but rather that the New Deal is one of the moments within kind of recent historical memory that within the U.S. at least, the government under intense grassroots militant pressure 
did something about general social welfare. You know, in the U.S., um, and I think the story is not, not dissimilar in the U.K., but in the U.S., because of how deeply neoliberalism has just, like, reshaped not only our conceptions of what public policy should do or can do, but also, like, our very subjectivities in ways that we were kind of talking about earlier, um, it's actually literally difficult to imagine the state acting under public pressure from below and from the left, to kind of use the the Zapatista phrasing that I always liked, kind of to respond to that kind of public pressure in a way that benefits large parts of the population and is is sort of aimed at general welfare. Um, And I think that's what's valuable about the New Deal. It's the responsiveness to public pressure and to a crisis. At that moment, it was, as you said, an economic crisis, not a sort of intertwined economic and environmental crisis, but a crisis nonetheless. And to do so in ways that involved a sort of different sense of what government could and, and should do. And I think that's a sense that we need to re-articulate in this moment. I'm, I'm not into a nostalgic idea of like, oh, if we could only go back to the New Deal era, or if we could only go back to, you know, the 30 years between the, the sort of 40s and the 70s, when at least for white working class men, you know, things looked a lot better, right? Um, I'm not interested in, in a sort of nostalgic rewind to another moment in politics, because all of those moments in politics were marked by serious forms of exclusion that are still very much with us today. But rather to sort of think about what's usable about American history, and honestly, there's not a lot. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, to think about things that might resonate in terms of what what was a moment where government responded to public pressure, to concerted militant pressure, and to a crisis, and did something that was somewhat at the scale that the crisis demanded. We might say it wasn't enough, for sure. But it was like approaching the scale, the ambition of public policy was at the same order of magnitude as as the crisis. And that's what I think we expect out of the Green New Deal. And then in kind of relation to some of the other misgivings I had previously and and no longer have, but did definitely have, um, and, and to some more of your question, another misgiving I had was, do young people care about the New Deal? Does it mean anything to them, right? So I'm a sort of like so-called frontline millennial, born in 1984. So I'm a kind of like the end of this of this generation. And now we have generations, you know, that younger than me and, and younger than the millennial generation that, that are getting already, already quite involved in, in politics. And so I was kind of thinking like, what are these young people, myself included, like care about the New Deal, like a lot, not, you know, a lot of the New Deal is still with us, but a lot of the sort of, sort of basic paradigm of of public policy that accompanied the New Deal is really was very much destroyed by neoliberalism. And, And does the New Deal resonate? Isn't like a brand, let's say, that like, that speaks to people at all? Or is it kind of ancient history and something that their grandparents talk about? But it's turned out, actually, again, to my surprise, that the Green New Deal is an extremely salient concept. And like poll after poll after focus group after poll shows that, right? And so it doesn't matter so much whether people think of the New Deal when they think of the Green New Deal. Though I do think that there is history of the New Deal that is worth excavating and thinking about and is is still relevant in certain ways um, today. But it's not so much that people hear the Green New Deal and think the New Deal or think about the 1930s, especially if they're 18 years old or something. It's that they hear the Green New Deal and they hear like new social contract 
oriented towards mitigating the climate crisis, right? A deal is, you know, a contract, a set of, you know, political relationships, something that's new because what is the reality right now sucks, especially for young people who are disenfranchised, indebted, you know, don't have political or economic power on the whole. So they would love a new deal. And also they would love that new deal to be green because younger people are extremely conscious of the climate crisis um, and extremely righteously angry about it. So I think Green New Deal just brings together a kind of set of associations that actually doesn't hinge that much on historical antecedents, but more is about the idea that we might fundamentally restructure society into something new and greener and lower carbon and less environmentally destructive. And I mean, for that younger cohort, does it have those sort of connotations of big government? And if it does, is is that a problem in terms of not wanting to simply replicate the social democratic project of the post-war era around um, nationalisation, an absence really of anything that went beyond that in terms of workers' control and democratisation? You know, it's a complex question that you're asking. So let me kind of break it apart a little bit. I think that from the surveys and, and polling data that I've read... I think that young people, or whoever is is, um, being asked, but young people in particular, do associate something like big government or public spending or social services, public investment, with the Green New Deal. And they also respond very favorably to that. I think that a lot of young people, particularly, of course, those who who are less well off, who are young people of color, have experienced just an absence of social welfare in their lives. And it's very apparent to them. Their schools are falling apart. Their public transit systems are falling apart. Green spaces and parks are not maintained. I mean, all of the things that you need to live a good life as a, as a young person or as someone of any age, but particularly when we're thinking about just the way that the public education system has been destroyed in this country as, as a young person. And then on top of that, college debt and, you know, all of these, you know, intersecting crises, I think that they are very enthusiastic about public collective intervention to kind of increase social welfare and they are they are fine with it and they even respond well not only to the big government kind of the explicitly quote-unquote big government elements of the green new deal but they respond well to the taxation elements i mean when when it's when it's said in the question and i've seen two different polling outfits both data for progress and gen forward and both of them have polled around the specific question of the Green New Deal will have to raise taxes. And, you know, and there'll be specifications also like of the most wealthy or, you know, that there's a progressive taxation system. It doesn't mean on you necessarily. But Americans supposedly are so tax averse that even when you specify that it's progressive taxation, people will like, you know, be scared of it. But not young people. They are in favor of raising taxes on the wealthy in order to address the climate crisis and the crisis of inequality. And they're in favor of big government programs, um, and they're in favor of, you know, what we might call like dramatically increasing the social wage, you know, decommodifying health and education and housing and all of these things and making them a collective responsibility that for the time being, while we still have dramatic inequality, that the that the most affluent pay for the most. They respond to that. Of course, you know, in that moment, they're not per se thinking, you know, well, that's social democracy and what we really want is full communism. <laughs> but, you know, that's not the way that the, that, that the um, survey is framed. So the survey is framed that, you know, given neoliberal kind of devastation, would you like a social welfare state and would you like the wealthiest to pay for it? And they say resoundingly yes and yes. And like, you know, 
the less well-off or the more racialized the community that the young person comes from, it's like the more yes and yes that is. Um, so there's also like a clear kind of class and, and, and race politics um, to people's attitudes around the welfare state and those who have been the most deprived of the welfare state, not just under neoliberalism, but also under the New Deal kind of paradigm, those who were excluded from the New Deal, are like the most enthusiastic about something like social welfare, which is something that has been extremely unequal racially in the U.S. Uh, since the New Deal onward. And how would you respond on the point about the Green New Deal being a, a sort of a workerist uh, vision? <sighs> Well, I hear that critique. I I want to validate everybody's, you know, feelings or whatever. Um, you know, I tend to prefer a job if we want to think about how to totally change work and what work means, what work is, which we need to do for several reasons. One is that if you as you said, we've been a sort of secular low growth period for a while now and that doesn't seem to be lifting anytime. And also because of automation, which is obviously like a, a cyclical issue in capitalism, and capitalism tends towards automation, and, then, and, and societies tend to, towards like paranoias about automation. And this has been the case for the past 150 years, and that's not going anywhere. So we have automation. We also have secular kind of stagnation. And at the same time, we have extreme inequality. So yes, we have secular stagnation, but it's really like we have wage stagnation and then we have extreme over-concentration of profits in the 1%. So that's our economic scenario. Now, there's kind of two basic ways one can approach that while we're still under capitalism. One is we can have UBI, and the second is we can have a jobs guarantee. And these are not mutually exclusive, but I think that they do rest on different assumptions and different political goals and different ideas about how work should be reshaped um, mm. in, in late capitalism. Uh, just to clarify, so UBI is, is universal basic income, right? Exactly. And, and a jobs guarantee is, is, is guaranteed work for whoever wants it. Mm. Right. Thank you. And I'll just note that I say late capitalism optimistically. <laughs> I hope we're under late capitalism, but no, we're certainly still under capitalism. That term's like 100 <laughs> years old or so, right? I know, I know. <laughs> Just around the corner. <laughs> Anyways, um, so so I think these are two different approaches, and I think that there are some left-wing versions of UBI out there. They often involve like pretty high incomes for the quote-unquote basic income, but there's also a lot of neoliberal Silicon Valley kind of tech fantasy visions of U UBI, which are not sure. really about social justice or mitigating inequality, but they are either a sort of neoliberal automation fantasy in which somehow none of us are working and all of us are just, you know, getting our check, but more kind of perniciously, they are about replacing the welfare state with um, an even more cash-mediated economy than our already totally cash-mediated economy. And so, you know, under an idea of UBI, why have social services when you can just give everyone a check at the end of the month and they can buy those things on the open market. So it actually potentially, again, and I don't want to impugn the left-wing variants of UBI because I think some of those are much better on this count, but, but the sort of center and right versions of UBI are really just about expanding the cash nexus and expanding commodification because you expand people's ability to pay at the point of service directly for social services or other goods like housing and transit. And so what I think is much better about a jobs guarantee, though I'll get to the point about workerism and full employment in a moment, is that it's sort of, it's not about 
cutting people a check. In my view, jobs guarantee is a part of a social vision in which as much as possible we are decommodifying basic and maybe even not so basic services and goods. So like housing and transit and education, energy utilities, all sorts of things, water. I mean, I I don't want to keep going because I'll like name so many things. It'll be overwhelming and we'll never end this podcast. But many things could be taken out of the market and have been and have successfully been managed um, without market mediation and might even work much better, might be much cheaper. Um, So and certainly are easy to regulate from an environmental perspective. So I think that decommodifying these huge areas of life that capitalism has sort of left us to like the whims of the market um, and defend for ourselves could be combined with a jobs guarantee. So on the one end, we're decommodifying a lot of what people spend their money on. On the other end, we're guaranteeing that whoever wants to and is able to work for some socially, or I like to say kind of socio-naturally useful labor will have a job because there is a lot of fucking work to do. Um, And so I think the other problem with the automation thing is it, or with this sort of idea that we're just going to get the robots to do it for us, is it sort of underestimates, like, how much work needs to be done to dig ourselves out of the climate crisis? How much ecological restoration work needs to be done? How much caring work needs to be done? How much we need to literally rebuild our built environment in order to make it less carbon intensive? And so there's a tremendous amount of socio-naturally useful labor. I think what's important to make it not workerist or the sort of distinctions that I would, I would um, identify to make it not just like a glorification of work is that it's not work for work's sake or work because the only way to feel good about yourself is if you have a decent, dignified job or whatever. I think there are other sources of meaning in life other than work, many other sources, right? But it's it's more that I think that the meaning of work changes when it's not just like an open labor market, but where there's socially useful labor that we're kind of doing in a kind of collective and shared and socially, politically coordinated way. But I also think that, you know, with a jobs guarantee, we could also get much more serious about reducing the amount that we work. If everyone that wanted and was able to do some socio-naturally useful work um, had the opportunity to, there's absolutely no reason for us to all work as much as we do currently, especially if, you know, under even more kind of perhaps utopian, you know, ideas where we really don't have the profit motive as the kind of engine of our economic system. There's a whole set of jobs that no longer are needed. So I think that thinking about reducing the work week dramatically, and I love the proposals for like a 20-hour work week, a 30-hour, you know, whatever, much less than the sort of Supposedly we have a 40-hour work week, but many people work much more than that and piecing it together through multiple jobs. So dramatically reducing the work week, focusing on socially and ecologically useful labor, and then decommodifying a lot of what people might otherwise spend their wages on, I think is a much more radical proposal than, you know, let the robots take over and live in some kind of capitalist fantasy where we all are get a check and we can spend it on an open market and buy the social services that we want. I mean, that is just not... I don't think, a route to social transformation. So while I do understand the critiques of a jobs guarantee, I think that if if we sort of view it as a way to reduce and redistribute work within a more decommodified economy, I think it's a much more radical proposal, actually, than, than hmm. even the left versions of UBI are. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon, 
you can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.